0: Okay. Still in our New Testament series. Been in the Gospel of Luke. Won't be long before we're in John. Um, A couple things. If you weren't here last week, we kind of unveiled the TABC app. And when you were coming in this morning, we were trying to get these to people who maybe weren't here last week. If you didn't grab one on the back, it's the information booth that will tell you how to download the app, how to get on it. It's our new giving platform. So, I know you got the email last week. Um, some things need to be shifted, but really encourage you to do that if you haven't done it. If you weren't here last week, we're really going to do a lot of communicating, and a lot of our connecting is going to be through this, this thing, the app. Last week, when I had people downloading the service, I told them, I said, just get on, do your search, and look for TABC. And so some people did that, and I got text messages later that when they did TABC, they found it was the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission. <laughs> so if you were wondering where I was leading you... Um, changes are coming to 12. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> that was one of those, you know, Doh! moments. So yeah, just uh, get on 12thavenue.org. 12th Avenue, 12th Avenue, that'll do it. That'll take you there. Um, and had a, had a great week. I spent the whole week on the road. We moved Kieran up to Oregon. Um, he got a job. We're thankful for that. That is a long haul, especially if you're in a U-Haul, hauling a car. Uh, that is a long trip. So um, if my voice sounds a little tired this morning, uh, Please forgive me. Um, You know, as we've been reading the Gospels, one thing that has really stood out to me is how many people around Jesus were people pleasers and how much um, the fear of man played into so many people's lives. And it stood out to me probably because I struggle with that. And I'm just wondering if I'm the only person here at 12th that struggles with people-pleasing or fearing men at times. Is there anybody else willing? Last service, I think we had one person. Steve Lone is willing to admit that. Um, anybody else struggle with that? Um, especially when it comes to living out your faith or sharing your faith. You know, am I the only person here that there's some people I'm kind of intimidated by with sharing my faith or maybe a situation? I'm sure there are people of us here, people here today other than me who feel like, you know, I could use more courage, right? And so, Jesus' life, we're going to see this morning, really speaks to that. We're going to end up in Luke 13, but we're actually going to, kind of like the Oregon Trail, we followed the Oregon Trail the whole way, I'm going to take you on a, on a journey to Luke 13. Turn to Luke, though, chapter 3, we're going to end in 13, we're going to take a journey through Luke to get there, um, but what I want you to see in the end the guys over here like Jesse and you guys can't probably see, I don't know if you can see this, but I've got a little flannel graph Jesus up here. My goal at the end is to really show you that the Jesus we follow is not the simple, cute, soft, fuzzy, flannel graph Jesus, but he's a real person, and I hope that by the end you will see that we follow a strong, brave, valiant Savior. That's my goal, is that when you leave, you'll see that we follow a strong, a brave, a valiant Savior. Savior. And um, my thoughts, my initial thoughts on this were really inspired by John Ortberg, and then there were some other people that I read on the subject. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into what I do, so, but I just wanted, wanted to give him a little heads up. So, to set this up, before we get into Luke 3, I need to set this up by talking about the Herodian dynasty, um, because the Herods are very prominent in the Gospels. And from the very beginning, Jesus is crossing paths with the Herods, I mean, from his birth. And there's a lot of Herods in the New Testament. And it's easy to read and get confused as to which Herod is talking about. Um, because the Herods were kind of like George Foreman. For those of you in my generation, you know George Foreman. He had his first son and he named his first son George, George II. And then his second son, he named George the Third, and then George the Fourth, and George the V. That's kind of what the Herods were like. So it's easy to get confused about them. So I want to tell you a little bit. First, I want to start with Herod the Great. He is the Herod that was alive when Jesus was born. He was half-Jewish, and he began his reign in 37 BC, and he asked the Roman Senate, and they gave him the title, the King of the Jews. So they gave him that title. And this guy, was, he was cruel. He had 10 to 11 wives, not sure how many, but 43 children. He executed two of his own sons because he thought they were too ambitious. He married Miriam, who was his favorite, most beloved wife when she was 15, had five children by her in seven years. After the birth of the seventh child, he began to not trust her, and he had her executed. And the same day had her mother executed, his mother-in-law. Five days before he died, he thought his eldest son was getting too ambitious, wanting to be king too much, and had his, bro- his, his oldest son executed. And just before his death, knowing that nobody in Israel would mourn his death, he brought 50 of the most prominent Jews from around the country, brought them, had them arrested, brought them to Jericho, put in prison in the stadium there, and gave orders that when he, on the day he died that they would all be beheaded because he wanted people around Israel mourning the day that he died. Thankfully, when he died, the soldiers didn't carry that out, and they let the people go. But he was not a good dude. Now, when he died, he left seven separate wills. And he had three sons, particularly the one in his power, um, Archelaus and Antipas who, Antipas, who were brothers, and Philip, who was a half-brother to them. And they both uh, they wanted the whole kingdom, and, but the, the, the wills weren't clear. So all three traveled to Rome, met with Caesar Augustus personally, all of them making the case to be granted the title the king of the Jews. And he ended up deciding to uphold the last will that Herod had, and he divided the kingdom into, into actually four parts, um, mainly among these three. And so to Archelaus, he gave Judea, Samaria, and Idumia. To Antipas, he gave Galilee and Perea. And to Philip, he gave Iteria and Trachonitis. Archelaus, I don't want to say a whole lot about him, but this guy was just like his dad. He was just as cruel. He had 3,000 Jews slaughtered in the temple area on a Passover. Um, I could tell you other things he did. He is so cruel that um, six years after he was given this position that Caesar stripped him of his power and sent him into France in exile. He was so hated by the people. This is the Herod that when Joseph and Mary were in Egypt with Jesus and when the angel said that Herod had died and they could now go home, that Joseph was intending and settling in Judea, but it said that he heard that Archelaus was in power and he was afraid and so he went on to Galilee and they settled in Nazareth. That's the guy. I want to talk a little bit about um, Antipas. So, and he was called, by the way, Herod Archelaus got the title um, Ethnarch, which meant the ruler of an ethnic group, or the ruler of the Jews. Kind of a simple way of saying it. Philip and Antipas um, got the name, the titles, Tetrarch. And I'm going to tell you in a minute what that means. But I really want to focus on Antipas. Uh, He is the Herod Jesus had the most dealings with. He was over Galilee, and that's where Jesus' ministry was. So he was given the title Tetrarch, like his brother Philip. And Tetrarch meant ruler of a fourth of a kingdom. Now, he wanted to be the king of a kingdom, and he became the ruler of a fourth of a kingdom. Um, He was a quarter ruler, a quasi-king. You know this riled him deeply because he so desperately wanted to be king of the Jews like his father was. He was kind of like Dwight in the office. Um, He had visions of grandeur, constantly, you know, Dwight calling himself assistant regional manager and had to be reminded he's the assistant to the assistant regional manager, right? That's what Antipas was like. He was, he was hungry for the power and the title that his father had, but he never got it. He was like his dad in another way. He did a lot of great rebuilding um, like his father did. He rebuilt the Roman, great Roman city of Sepphoris, rebuilt it. Um, it was just four miles from Nazareth where Jesus was. A lot of people think that as a carpenter, he and his father would have done a lot of work in the building in Sepphoris. He also built completely from the ground up what became the capital of Galilee, which is Tiberias, a place we stayed when we were over in Israel. Um, His greatest threat was on the south, the Nabataean kingdom. And so to help keep his kingdom, the kingdom he had in power, he ended up marrying the daughter of of the king of Nabatea, kind of a political alliance, so to keep his border safe. Um, but later, we all know he fell in love with his half-brother's wife, Herodias, and he divorced the princess of Nabatea and sent her home and married, um, married Herodias. She was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, who was his father. She's the daughter of his of Herod the Great's son Aristobulus, that really doesn't matter, it's a half-brother to Antipas. So she is his sister-in-law and his niece both. Isn't that crazy? And when they had kids, she was their aunt, their mother, and their cousin. <laughs> How sketchy is that? I don't know if there's any states in the United States where, where hound dog, coon dogs live under porches and where there's a lot of vehicles out front jacked up on cinder blocks and where they marry their cousins. I don't know if there's a place like that, but if there is a place like that, Antipas would have been the governor of that state, okay? Uh, I won't name any states, but I just know Kansas isn't like that, at least not where I'm from. This guy Antipas was unpopular, he was unscrupulous, he was wicked, and he was a puppet king, and he had very tenuous hold on power. We'll get to that in a minute. And somebody that has a tenuous hold on power, but wants all power, is a dangerous man, right? He's a dangerous man. So, Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3. Luke does a really cool thing. After he does the birth narratives and the the genealogy in chapter 3, he's really setting up Jesus' ministry. Um, and here's how he starts in Luke chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate, tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of, um, of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And what, here's what Luke's doing here, is he's setting up the power structures that are all around Jesus, the Roman powers, the powers in Israel, um, Like any good storyteller, he's setting up all the players and all the power brokers that Jesus is going to be dealing with. And it's so cool that after setting up all this power structure, the Roman and the Judean power structure, he says this, the word of God came to John, to none of them, but he came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. A crazy man, right? Who eats locusts, who just wears animal skins and lives out in the desert, that that's the person that God speaks to, a person with no credentials. And so what ends up happening to John? I mean, look down in verse 18, if you go, we, and we know the story, especially if you've been reading along in verse 18. With many others, words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them, and it, we know it's the good news of the kingdom. We're going to come to that in a minute. Verse 19, but when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all, he locked John up in prison. So that's the whole thing with kings like this, is you come against them in power in any way, you come against their kingdom or what they're trying to do, that they're going to they're gonna use their power against you. And that's what happens. He arrests John. We know that he later beheads him. Now keep your finger in Luke, and I want you to turn back to Matthew 4, because I want to show you something really interesting in Matthew 4. And we're going to look at verse um, Matthew 4, we're going to look at verse 12. So keep your finger in Luke, because we're going to be spending, most of our journey is going to be in Luke. But I want to show you something Matthew. In Matthew 4.12, it says this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, when he heard that he had been put in prison, he withdrew to where? Where did he go to? He went to Galilee. Okay? Jesus was in Judea before this. John tells us a little bit about his early ministry in Judea. He's in Judea. As soon as he hears John is, is, is beheaded, is killed, or is imprisoned by Antipas, Jesus heads up into Galilee. Now tell me, who is not ruling in Judea where he is? Who has no power where he is? Antipas, right? But who has power in Galilee? Antipas has power up there. And where is Jesus heading? He's heading up into Galilee. He's heading, you know, they talk about when the kitchen's hot, stay out of the kitchen. The kitchen's hot up there, and he's heading up into the heat. Look at verse 17 of chapter uh, in Matthew. So still in Matthew. If you go down to, to verse 17... Um, It says this, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, or the kingdom of God. So he's preaching a new kingdom. And what's the last thing any king wants to hear? Is somebody coming in and proclaiming that they're bringing a new kingdom, right? His father, Herod the Great, when the magi came and they said, the king has been born and we want to know where, there's a new king, the king of the Jews, he got so enraged at the threat to his own kingdom that he ended up massacring and slaughtering all the children, males two years and younger in Bethlehem because kings don't like to hear of a kingdom. But Jesus comes up into Galilee where it's hot and he starts talking about a new kingdom and that he's the kingdom bringer. And I want to tell you, if you start talking about kingdoms in, in human kingdoms, they become threatened and things get pretty dicey. Um, I'm amazed that here is Jesus deliberately, calmly, courageously walking into Antipas territory. The last place I would go, I would go the opposite direction. I'd stay clear of that guy as far away as possible, but not Jesus. He strides into the lion's den. What a man! What a man. Now go to Luke. We're going back in Luke the rest of the time. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I want you to I want to go to verse 24. A few about a couple months ago, I think I preached on when John when he sent disciples because he was questioning Jesus. This is right after that story. And in verse 24 it says after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. Um, I need to stop and, and tell you something important that's, that's going on here. In the ancient world, there were no newspapers, right? No internet. Kings didn't have Twitter, didn't have Facebook. They had no way to communicate with people. Their only source of propaganda was their coins. And last fall when I talked about Paul, I showed you some of the coins and the things it said about, about Caesar. That was their way of showing their power and saying things about themselves. Most people never saw the ruler of Rome So they would put their image on it so people knew what they looked like. And as you know, in Israel, um, they thought to have an image on a coin was violating the second commandment. So the Herods would not put their image on on their coin. Instead, they would put a symbol because they didn't want to get the Jewish people riled up. Um, And everybody knew that symbol. Whenever they saw the symbol, they knew who it represented and it reminded them who was in charge. And, you know, we still use symbols even with political things, right? We still use animal symbols. If I show you an elephant and donkey, you know what those stand for, don't you? Yeah. Uh, We use symbols for companies, for sports teams. If I show you these, you know which teams those all represent. Um, I do want to point out something. That tiger is not a Missouri tiger. There's no way I would put a Missouri tiger on here. That's a Fort Hayes State University tiger. I just want you to know that. Uh, Hollenbecks were in first service. Oh, it's too bad uh, the Martins aren't here. I'll have to to tell them. I mean, I'm going to show you some animal symbols. You tell me the company they represent. So this is who? I mean, and these are so obvious, right? Symbols are so powerful. How about this one? Okay. How about uh, Crocs? Okay. I actually got to, to do this teaching a few weeks ago in Hayes, Kansas to college students. and Not a single college student got this next one. I was a little bit surprised. What's this one? Yeah, Izod for those that are older, right? And for the older generation, how about this one? Yeah, RCA. Uh, I've got a few more. This is for the younger generation. Twitter and Firefox, Okay. Uh, this one's really famous, all the kids. Yeah, everybody loves that one. And the most famous animal symbol in the whole world, worldwide known, right? <laughs> Loved, honored, adulated. <laughs> I want to tell you, though, I was not a fan when that was their logo, okay? That's pretty ugly. Um, but I, tell you, I show you all that because um, the, t- when, when the Herods, they all put symbols for their coins. And for Herod the Great, his was pomegranates. For Archelaus, he used grapes. Antipas picked something that was very common in Galilee. You would see it all along the Sea of Galilee, all along the Jordan River, and it was reeds. Um, Reeds are very common there. And so that's what he picked as a symbol. And so anytime you saw a coin from Antipas, it always had reeds on it. And here's why that's significant. Look back at verse 24. So John's messengers left, and Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you come out in the wilderness to see? Did you come out to see a reed that swayed in the wind? I mean, think of this image, right? I mean, when we think of politicians, people in power, don't we often think that they're just blown about by the winds of the culture, whatever most people think, right? And it also shows the idea of a reed being weighed. It's showing like how, how weak a weed is. I mean, a reed, yeah, weed, like that it can, it can just, just the simple wind can, can bow it down. And look what else he says right after that. He says, if not, what did you go out to see? A man, did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine, expensive clothes and indulge in luxury, they're in palaces. What did you go out to see? You went out to see a prophet, and I tell you, more than a prophet. I mean, who's he talking about? Did you go out to see a reed? Did you go out to see a man in fine clothes? Did you go out to see a man living in a palace? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Antipas, right? He's saying, no, you didn't go to see him. Jesus in Mark, he talked publicly about the yeast of Herod. It was a life of wealth, of pleasure, of power, of ease, of self-fulfillment, of consumerism. Everything really our culture is about right now. We, Our culture is all about the yeast of, of Herod. Um, but Jesus is saying, they don't stream to him because they don't like that kind of king deep in every human heart even in a consumeristic culture I think all of us long for a different kind of kingdom and he's like the people they stream to see is John that's who they go to see because there's a longing for a new kind of king and a different kind of kingdom I mean can you hear people around him saying like Jesus like shh do you know what you're saying can you keep it down a little bit here right um, this is unbelievable courage and he's standing there fearless he's facing down the powers of his age I love this So flip over to Mark 9, just probably a page or two. Mark 9, I mean Luke 9, sorry, Luke 9. And we want to be in verse uh, 7. So now Herod the Tetrarch, he heard about all that was going on. He's getting winds of Jesus, right? And he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared, still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John, who then is this if... This, that I hear such things about. And he tried to see him. But we know from the Gospels, he never saw him until the day that Jesus was crucified. So he's become curious and he's wanting to see this. And he has a really big question. And his question is, who is this man? Who is this man? So turn to Luke 14. I want to show you a text here, something Jesus says. And before I do, I need to uh, uh, tell you a story about Antipas. You know, I told you he divorced his first wife, the princess of Nabatea. Well, it ticked off her dad, the king of Nabatea. So he raised an army of 20,000 men and invaded Idumea. And Herod got up an army of 10,000 and he did battle with the king of Nabatea and he lost really bad because 20,000, you know, 10,000 against 20 is not good odds. Went running home with his tail between his legs, had to send a message to Rome, had them send a garrison down that held the king of Nabatea back out of his territory. And so in Luke 14, Jesus is talking about discipleship and the cost of discipleship. And he says, you can't, if you want to be my disciple, you need to count the cost. And he tells two stories of counting the cost. One story is, is you don't build a building without knowing how much money you have. Because if you leave the building half done, that's foolish. And his second story is in verse 31. He says, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation. A smart king would send a delegation, right? While the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. That's what a smart guy goes would do. But a king who's not the sharpest tool in the shed, he's going to take his 10,000 and fight the guy anyways, right? Okay, again, everybody knows. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Antipas. Um, It's like, Jesus, you're going to be in serious trouble, the things that you're saying about him. And Jesus, it's almost like he's saying, I'm not the one in serious trouble. The one in serious trouble is this man who has this fake power, and his kingdom won't last. He's the one that's in serious trouble. He talks as if he knows that he's bringing the true kingdom that's going to outlast Herod's petty kingdom. So I love Jesus, his daring, his moxie, the audacity. And I ask the question, who is this man? Who is this man? So go to Luke 8. Luke 8. Flip back to Luke 8. I want to show you something else in Luke 8. We're going to be in verse 1. So after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. Also, some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called the Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of whose household? Herod Antipas' household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So he, Jesus is being followed by women, and in that day, women could never follow a rabbi, couldn't learn from a rabbi. So again, the total radical nature of his kingdom. He's being followed by this women, these women, and not only is he being followed by them, but these women are financially supporting him, Right? And one of the women financially supporting them is Joanna, who is married to Cusa, who is the household manager of Antipas. The guy you just know has drawn a large salary, huge revenue flow, it's going to his wife, and then she's using it to fund the ministry of Jesus. Can you imagine the conversations that went on in their household, right? Right? Herod talking to Cusa. What's this about your wife following him, and my money's going to him, and him talking to her? Can you imagine the courage of her, to be publicly following Jesus? And here's the thing I most love about this this story in Luke eight. Um, you know, anybody who does fundraising, especially nonprofits, you'll set up like. Like these, these tiers of like, you know, you can give the 20 a month or the 100 or the 1,000 or you can be the five, you know, and, and they give them names. Like this is the gold tier, you know, to, to encourage people to give at the top. Well, I want you to know that whenever Jesus, when they took his list of, fund, of donors for his fundraising, they took it from Judas and they were looking at the list of the donors at the very top in the platinum cup, club was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was probably the number one supporter of the ministry of Jesus through Uh, Joanna, how subversive is the kingdom of God, right? And who is this man? Who is this man? So Luke 13. This is where we're getting in our journey. We read this this week. Antipas is going to come up one more time. So in chapter 13, verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else because Herod, Antipas, he wants to kill you. He wants to kill you. And Jesus replied, "Go tell that fox. Go tell that fox." Um, when we think of a fox, we think what we tend to think of is it represents like clever, clever right? Crafty, some, an animal that's smart. Um, that's not what it meant in their culture. In the Mediterranean world of his day, it meant something totally different. Lions lived in that area. Lions lived in Israel. Um, And in their world, lions were king of the beasts. I mean, they are to us too, right? Lions are king of the beasts. They're at the top of the carnivore food chain. They're the ones that made the kills. Other animals scavenged afterwards, like foxes might scavenge, right? So in their culture, great men, great men, men with real power and real greatness were called lions. Lesser men, men with pseudo power, were called foxes. Isn't that cool? A fox was somebody in an inferior position. Lacking real power, a weakling, a poser, a pretender. The Jewish rabbis had a saying, better to be the tail of a lion than the head of a fox. Isn't that powerful? So by calling him a fox, Jesus is saying that he's not a lion. That the one with true power is Caesar, not Herod. That Caesar could take that from him at any moment. That Herod's not even a king. He's a tetrarch. The head of a quarter of a kingdom. He's a lion wannabe. He was just, Jesus, simply speaking, the reality of the illusion of Herod's power. That his power could be taken at any moment. And in fact, it was. Six years after Jesus died, um, a new Caesar took him out of power and sent him into exile in Spain. So his power, though he could make life miserable for people, his power is limited and fleeting. And Jesus paid no more attention to Antipas than he did like a fly on the shoulder. Just brush him off, right? You go tell that pretend king that tetrarch, that ruler of a fourth of a kingdom, that king wannabe, you go tell that fox. Don't you hear courage And that when he says that? Who is this man? Who is this man? But I want to keep reading verse 32. You go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I'll reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. In Luke 9.51, it said that he had set his face to go to Jerusalem, right? That's his mission, is to die on the cross for my sin and to your sin. And what he says is, I want you to go tell that fox, though he thinks he has power to take my life, that he has no power over me. I'm on a mission to Jerusalem and I'm going to continue. My kingdom is going to advance and I'm going to heal and and cast out demons and I'm going to continue to do what I do and I'm going to get to Jerusalem and there's nobody that's stopping me, including that fox and his fake power. Nobody is going to keep me from my mission. You go tell that fox. Neither Pilate nor the high priest nor you or anybody in this world is going to keep me from the cross where I am willingly going to give my life. (laughs) Who is this man? Who is this man? One final thing in the text. Look at verse 34. Right after that, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen, as a hen gathers chicks under her wing. And you are not willing. So he just calls Herod a fox. And what does he call himself? what a hen a hen to me that doesn't seem very tough hens aren't very strong right aren't very intimidating I don't know many sports teams that are called the hens it seems like there's one somewhere but uh, what they were thinking I don't know you tell me if a fox gets in a hen house who's going to win that battle every single time the fox every single time right Uh, fox sleek quick powerful jaws claws sly against the hen, fat and plump, can hardly walk, wings that really don't work, no claws, no teeth, right, nothing to defend herself. The only weapon that the hen has in defending her chicks, do you know what it is, the only weapon she has? It's herself, it's her body, it's her life, and a hen will die so her chicks can live, The only power a hen has is her love and her willingness willingness to sacrifice herself for her chicks. Does that sound like anybody you know? Do you get the picture? Do you see what he's saying? Who is this this man? So he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's going to lay down his wife willingly for the forgiveness of sins. And he's going to be there soon. We're getting close. And I want to tell you, all the power pieces that he talks about in the beginning of Luke, all those power brokers, they are going to be in Jerusalem. God is gathering all of those people there. The religious leaders are going to be there, the high priest. Pilate's going to be there. Antipas is going to be there. They're all going to be there for Passover. They were rarely all together, but they're going to be there that day. All in town the same day. And they will finally conspire together and work together to rid themselves of this kingdom bringer. And they'll finally do the thing that they've been wanting to do. I love this story. I love the story of Jesus. I love Jesus. I love who he is. His story is so thick with irony. I want you to think about a couple of things the irony of it all. I mean, think about it. What title did Herod Antipas most want to be called? He wanted to be called what? The King of the Jews. Who ends up having a plaque put over his head and is called the King of the Jews? Jesus on the cross gets the title from an agent of Caesar that Herod Antipas never got but that he so desperately wanted. And he was the true king of the Jews, right? Isn't that cool? Not only that, but if you think about it, all of these people we read about, you know, all the Herods and um, Licinius and Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate, we would not have known any of those names if it were not for Jesus and his story. The irony of that. The person they thought was least significant. The only reason we know those people existed and who they were is because of Jesus. Who is this man? So let me wrap up. One last thing. Verse 32. I kind of, I read it, but I didn't say anything about it. Go tell that fox. You go tell that fox. I'm going to keep on driving out demons, healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. That is so powerful. Can you tell me what is the third day? What is the third day? It is resurrection. It is the day of new life. It's the thing we celebrated just over a month ago. The day that Jesus rose victoriously, fully, and finally conquered every puppet king and every puppet kingdom in the whole world. It's like Jesus, when he says this, he's saying, Herod, you all, all the others, you can collude in Jerusalem to put me to death. You can nail me to the cross. You can think that you are done with me. But I want you to know on the third day, On the third day, I will rise victorious, conquering all. All human power, including Caesar's power to kill on a cross, none of that can defeat him. All those powers are made null and void on the third day. And that's the reason Jesus was beginning a kingdom movement that would grow and end up taking control of the whole Roman Empire, an empire that eventually collapsed and has spread now into every nation, is moving into every tribe. And Rome is 2,000 years in the past of history, right? 1,000 years past. I don't remember when Rome fell. And that's why I've shown this before. I love this image in the Colosseum, the main symbol of Rome and her power. Lies in ruins of an empire that lies in ruins, and the most photographed thing in that Colosseum is the cross that somebody put in there. That's the thing everybody wants to go and get a picture with because Jesus stands and Rome doesn't. You go tell that fox he will never ultimately have victory. They can take my life, but on the third day I will rise again. Who is this man? Who is this man? I'm going to tell you, he's no milk toast. He is no flannel graph Jesus, no felt board Jesus. This is not a Mr. Rogers, okay? Mr. Rogers is a good guy. I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but this Jesus is no Mr. Rogers. This guy has guts. He's tough as nails. He's fearless. He's strong. He is brave. He's valiant. Tell me, in this story, in the story of Jesus... Who is the real lion? Is it Antipas? No, he's a fox. Is it Caesar? It's not Caesar. Who's the real lion? Jesus, the great lion, the lion of Judah, the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's the great lion. And he may be good, he is good, but he's not safe, as C.S. Lewis says. In fact, he's dangerous. He's dangerous. I love that about him. Aren't you honored to follow a man like this? Are you not honored to follow a man like this? And do you also not wish you could live your life as courageously as he did? Do you not wish you could have that kind of strength and that kind of courage and be valiant like that? Do you not long to be as dangerous as he was? And if you give yourself fully to him, he can make you dangerous. I have two questions I want to end with, two questions. Number one, um, for you, but it's for me. How dangerous are you? How dangerous am I? You know, on a scale of one to ten, with one being I'm not dangerous at all, to ten, like a Jesus level, like, how dangerous are you to the kingdoms of this world? I don't mean that in a negative way, but how courageous are you? And where would you like to be? More importantly, though, is this question. I want to know, what is keeping you from being dangerous with your faith? What or who is keeping you from being dangerous with your faith? In other words, Whom or what are you afraid of? Who or what right now plays the role of Antipas in your faith walk? Who or what is Antipas in your faith walk? What person? What group of people? What situation? What's the thing that's Antipas to you that you tend to back off from when it comes up? Who is Antipas to you? I just want you to know that whatever Antipas is to you, that that thing is a fox. It's fake. It's a pretender. It has no ultimate power over you. It does not have the final say in your life. King Jesus is the one who has final say in your life. Don't need to be afraid of whatever your Antipas is because greater is he who's in, who's in you than who, he who's in the world. So would you stand with me? I want you to stand. And I want you to do something like I don't know that I've ever done here. I'd like you to bow your head and close your eyes, okay? We're not going to do anything major, but bow your head and close your eyes. Uh, if any of you want to say, Jesus, I've been living in fear of an antipas in my life, and I'm tired of living in fear, I need your strength in me to overcome that fear. If that's you this morning, like it is me, I want you to raise your hand. If that's you There's an antipas in your life that you're afraid of. I want you to raise your hand. Okay, To those that raise your hand, I want to challenge you this week to do one thing for Jesus that will require you to overcome a fear. I want you to step out of your comfort zone into something that you're afraid of. Especially if that thing is your antipas, if it ends up being in your life this week. To take a step into it. In the name of Jesus. Because he is dangerous and he's still calling people to be dangerous for him. I want to pray for those that raise their hand. Father, I pray for myself, for those, Lord, like pleasing people or trying to, to look good to people or being afraid of what people will think of you or do, for, do against you, just whatever, Lord. It's such a, a terrible, it's a terrible way to live. And for those that raise their hand, they've got an antipas in their life. I pray that you would give them the strength in you to draw close to you, to be close to you and to get the strength to quit being afraid of that, but to step courageously into it and to face that fear with your power and with your love. And we pray this in your good name, Jesus, the strong, the brave, the valiant one in your name, the great lion. Amen. All right, 12th, as always, you are sent, and you're sent this week to live courageously and valiantly for your great king. All right, you're sent.